Gospel of John, chapter 20. John 20, and I'll be reading a good portion of this chapter to you as we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this Easter morning. We just got done singing, I know that my Redeemer lives. And um, sometimes there are expressions that are used over and over again in the Christian church and we get so accustomed to them that I'm afraid that we may forget what we're saying. Do you have any idea what you're saying when you say that Jesus, your Redeemer, lives? It's pretty remarkable and of course the world ridicules that and finds that pretty hard to believe. Anybody who uses a refrigerator, Rudolf Bultmann once said, can't believe in a resurrection. I mean anybody with a scientific mentality knows better than that. Well, I think we know better than Rudolf Bultmann, and I'm glad to sing as well as to proclaim and to defend publicly the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And I'd like to um, read John 20 to you this morning because John is concerned with this question about believing the resurrection and how it comes about that we do so. So hear now God's word beginning at the first verse of John the 20th chapter. Now on the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, while it was yet dark, unto the tomb, and seeth the stone taken away from the tomb. She runneth therefore, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb, and they ran both together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came first to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he seeth the linen cloths lying, yet he did not enter in. Simon Peter therefore also cometh following him, and entered into the tomb, and he beholdeth the linen cloths lying, and the napkin that was upon his head not lying with the linen clothes, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also, who came first to the tomb, and he saw and believed it. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary was standing outside at the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beholdeth two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had thus said, she turned herself back, and beholdeth Jesus standing, but knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turneth herself, and saith unto him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus saith to her, Do not touch me, for I am not yet ascended unto the Father. But go unto my brethren, and say to them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene cometh, and telleth the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things unto her. 
When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed unto them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Jesus cometh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and see my hands, and reach hither thy hand and put it into my side and be not faithless but believing Thomas answered and said unto him my Lord and my God Jesus saith unto him because you have seen me thou hast believed blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed and thus far the reading of God's word hope against all hope that's what the message the resurrection is and John has very well illustrated for us in this text, drawn out at great length, the difficulty in believing in the resurrection of anybody, but the difficulty of believing in the resurrection of this one who was thought to be the Jewish teacher par excellence, the anointed one of God, the very Messiah himself. It was not easy to believe this, and John wants us to know that. We are so accustomed to the gospel stories, they've become so familiar to us, that I think we fail to see some of the literary features that are unique to them. And in John's gospel in particular, John takes an entire chapter, virtually an entire chapter, to say no one thought this was possible. Now why would he bother to do that? Why doesn't John just tell the story positively, declare the truth, say this is what we believe, and let's get on with it. It's time now for the Christian centuries to start rolling. Well, because at the time John wrote, we didn't have all this Christian history and tradition that had been built up. This was brand new stuff, and on top of it, nobody expected it to take place. Those who were ridiculing the resurrection would find it most beneficial, therefore, to look at how difficult it was for the disciples to come to this faith. Because if they came to this faith against such difficulties, then it wasn't something somebody just made up. It isn't something that they simply were looking forward to. You know, we sometimes say, you know, believing is seeing. Just like seeing is believing. Believing is seeing in the sense that we often will see things that we either hope to see or expect to see. Did you know that? Gestalt psychology in the 20th century has verified that particular um, principle over and over and over again. It's really kind of fascinating the way that the mind works in terms of uh, our visual and also our auditory input. Uh, just to give you an example, if, you, um, if you're accustomed 
to seeing um, a deck of cards, you know, and you know how you go through the deck of cards in order, you know, every uh, particular, um, whether it's hearts or diamonds, whatever. If, if these are flashed up on a screen rapidly enough that you don't stop to think about each one, you're just watching them, you can actually take a card out of sequence. It's clear enough that it's out of sequence. People will not catch that it's out of sequence because you see what you expect to see, sort of thing. Um, any number of uh, interesting experiments have been done with the way we see things. And uh, it, you can put a picture of a common scene. Let's say you're in a car driving down uh, a road in, a, in farmland, you know, and you know the sorts of things you're accustomed to seeing, and yet you can put right into the picture something that once you go back and, and freeze frame it, it's completely out of place. This doesn't belong on a road and farmland and so forth, and yet as you're watching the movie, it doesn't phase you anything because you see what you expect to see. Well, we don't want to have an entire lesson on psychology this morning or the way in which the mind interprets its visual input. That's all fascinating. But Gestalt psychology has helped us to understand that sometimes believing is seeing. If you believe such and such is going to be the case, that's what you tend to see. But the disciples didn't expect to see Jesus. So much so that when Jesus stood right in Mary's presence, she thought she was talking to the gardener. Now, there, there may be other things. I, I don't want to say that you know, she stood in the bright light with neon lights all about. And it may have been at the uh, very opening of the cave. It may have been dark. Jesus may have had a hood on. There may have been things. But still, she knew Jesus. She didn't expect to see him, though. Why did Mary go to the tomb? You know, Churches often have Easter sunrise services. Wouldn't have been very pleasant today with the rain. I don't know how many churches did that. But you know why we have sunrise services? Because we want to remember how the disciples went to the tomb at daybreak. And they found that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, on the first Easter, they didn't go to the tomb to find Jesus raised from the dead. They went to the tomb to finish the job of burying him properly. They had to hurry on Friday evening because the Sabbath was coming. As the sun goes down, Sabbath begins, and the preparation of the body is not appropriate, according to Jewish law and tradition. And so they hastily anointed his body, and he was put in the tomb. And now that it is the end of the Sabbath, it is Sunday morning in Jewish reckoning, Mary comes back early to finally do the job that had not been done completely. And when Mary leaves the tomb to go find the disciples, she does not leave to go declare the resurrection. You know, we've got to get the story straight here. I think we have such a generalized, fuzzy picture of this that we forget that she left. And what does she tell them when she finds them? Let's read this again. John 20, verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary came, Mary Magdalene, she came early, it was still dark, she came to the tomb and found that the stone was moved away from it. And so she runs to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? And an interesting description. Well, that's John himself. John, the writer of the gospel, doesn't want to refer to himself by name, so he just describes himself. Now, which is the more humble approach? <laughs> well, this particular description must have meant an awful lot to John. The, the one that Jesus loved. Jesus had a particular friendship and affection for John. So John doesn't say, she ran to Peter and to me. 
to Peter and John, but to Peter and the disciple whom he loved. But notice what she comes to say. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Her concern here is with the dignity of the burial rites that belong to this one that was their esteemed teacher. She says, how will we ever complete the job of preparing this body for burial if we don't know where the body is? That is the first declaration of the resurrection. Boy, that's pretty anticlimactic. She doesn't even understand the reason the body's not there is because he's alive again. She says, now where have they put him? Now we know that there was a great deal of tension between the Jews and those who would be followers of Jesus in that day over that particular weekend. We know that because, again, if you're reading the Bible, not just listening to the words that you're so accustomed to, but paying attention, that in the evening of that day, when they met together, John specifically says they shut and locked the doors because they were afraid of the Jews. It's a very, very sad commentary on the faith or faithlessness of the disciples that the Jews believed more Jesus' declaration of his coming resurrection than the disciples. For you see, the Jews said, he said that he was going to rise from the dead and therefore we better put a stone against the, the opening of the cave. Pilate, as you know, sealed it. He posted guards there lest the disciples come and steal the body. Right? Well, where were the disciples while the soldiers were afraid they'd steal the body? Quivering in a corner, thinking it's all over, this guy we put our faith in didn't prove to be the real one after all. They didn't expect the resurrection. Mary came to finish the burial. And she runs to Peter and John not to declare he's alive, he's alive, but where's his body? How will we get this done? The Jews, in their hostility, have now moved the site of the burial, and I don't know where to find him. This is amazing. And so then they run together, John tells us, to the tomb. And John can't help but remind us that he outran Peter. <laughs> There's just something in the male ego about that kind of thing, isn't there? And so John very nicely reminds us that he got there before Peter, he looked in, and John, of course, he didn't want to step into the tomb. He's wondering, what's this all about? This is very strange stuff. Peter, if you know anything about Peter, this will not surprise you. Peter doesn't stop at the, at the opening to the tomb. He just runs right in. You know, impetuous Peter gets into the middle of things, and then lo and behold... Not only is Jesus' body not there, but what is there? The grave clothes. <laughs> and when we look back at it, we can be kind of smart aleck about this and say, God, wake up, can't you figure out what's happened? Because we know the end of the story. But if you had been living this through, can you? what was going through Peter's mind? He's going, we don't know where the body is, it's not here. But they unwrapped him. Now, why would they unwrap him if they were moving his body? To the point here is that they would not have done that. If they were moving the corpse to another place, they would not unwrap the corpse and then have to wrap it up again. The Romans were not in the habit of performing, you know, menial service for the Jews, much less taking care of their garbage and their corpses. If the soldiers had moved the body, they would not have taken the time to unwrap him. And then on top of it, John tells us, 
they were nicely folded. All of these linens that had been used to uh, enshroud the body had been nicely folded and put aside. Again, you don't do that with grave clothes. You know what you do, especially after somebody's been bleeding into the grave clothes and so forth? You wad them up and burn them. Okay? But here they are, wrapped and folded, and then on top of it, the linen that was about his head when they buried him was rolled up in a separate place by itself. Somebody had clearly done a very nice job of tidying up after this. This is not the work of soldiers moving the body, much less of people taking the body away at night. Amazing stuff going on here. And then entered in the other disciple, verse 8, says, he who came to the tomb first and saw and believed. How many sermons, well-meaning, how many sermons have gotten it entirely wrong here, thinking that John came in finally and he believed in the resurrection. That isn't what this means at all. And you know that isn't what this means because the very next verse says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again unto their own home. What John believed is that the body was gone. And these strange things that had been described were the case. And we'd like to think, well, this is easy, John. You know, Jesus rose from the dead. This is good news. What he had declared and predicted was true all along. But that isn't the case. Mary still doesn't understand this to be true because now she's weeping at the tomb. What's she weeping about? Well, of course, she's already weeping because Jesus, whom she loved, is dead. They have killed an innocent man and somebody that was very precious to Mary and to the other disciples. She's weeping. But she's weeping all the more because she can't show the proper dignity to the body of her Lord. And that's why the conversation proceeds as it does. Now as she looks in, God has put two angels there to meet her and to tell her that she shouldn't be weeping. Notice this conversation. The angels say, why are you weeping? Verse 13, And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. So you see, in the flow of the story, they still don't believe in the resurrection. They did not expect it. When they had all the evidence that would have led to that inference, they did not draw the inference. Mary is still saying, I don't know where the body is. That's why I'm crying. And then Jesus is there. But there isn't anybody in Hollywood who could make a picture dramatic enough to capture this moment. And Jesus speaks to her. Woman, why are you crying? And she, um, she now thinks that this must be the gardener. Gestalt psychology again, right? She didn't expect to see Jesus. And so whatever visual clue she had, even if it was you know, fairly dark and so forth, she didn't catch the fact it was Jesus. And so she addresses him as the gardener and says, Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take care of it. She said, You don't have to go disposing of the body of this important man in this way. Just tell me where you've taken him. Mary's really kind of disturbed about this, and then Jesus calls her by name. Can you imagine 
the shock. He says, Mary, it's me. I'm not the gardener. I'm the body that you're looking for. And I'm not a body that's dead. I'm not wrapped in grave clothes. I'm alive. Mary. And the drama of the moment is captured by the fact that John doesn't relate it. You know, he could have just continued in normal Greek saying, she said, teacher. But he wants to capture that very moment as she speaks in the Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews of that day. She says, Rabboni. The first thing that any believer said to Jesus after he rose from the dead, Rabboni, teacher. Well, John blew it. Because if John was writing this story to convince us that Jesus rose from the dead, the first person to be a believer would not have been a woman. I'm sorry, ladies. You know, in our day and age, with all this talk about women's liberation and equality and all that sort of thing, uh, we may not appreciate this, but the fact is, in the day in which John wrote, women couldn't give testimony in court because their word was unreliable or was deemed to be unreliable. So here's John trying to convince us that Jesus rose from the dead. And who's the first one to give testimony? A woman. Now why am I emphasizing this? Because if he were making it up, rather than relating the facts as they actually were. If he were making this up, no one would have made it up with a woman being the first believer. Not in that day and age, and sadly, probably not in this day either. But whatever you may think of our current situation in terms of relationships to women and what their credibility is, in that day, you would not have a woman be the first one to give testimony. And so what's that tell us? It tells us that's the way it happened then. You wouldn't rewrite the story. You wouldn't make it up this way. And John emphasizes in verse 9, So they knew not the scripture, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. It wasn't the scripture that gave them the expectation of the resurrection. They didn't believe it. They didn't think about it. They didn't dwell on it. And in the end, that isn't why they believed it. They believed it because they were forced against all expectation. And so Jesus now, in John 20, appears to the disciples that night. He shows them his body. They have a conversation with him. But Thomas doesn't want to believe this because he says, I haven't had what we would call the empirical verification. I haven't, through my own senses, I haven't observed with my own eyes and touched with my own hands. And he won't believe until he has that opportunity. Well, John's trying to make a point then that against all hope, against all odds, against all expectation, these people came to believe that a man who was dead actually came to life again. But verse 9 is the indictment. They had not yet believed the scripture. Turn to Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter. 
Luke 24. And I'm going to begin reading at the 13th verse. Another story about the day of resurrection and what brought the early Christians to be believers. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was three score furlongs from Jerusalem. And they communed with each other of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass, while they communed and questioned together, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, what communications are these that you have one with another as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said unto him, Dost thou alone sojourn in Jerusalem and not know the things which are come to pass uh, there in these days? <clears throat> that would be kind of like today somebody saying, What's all this stuff about O.J. Simpson? And so what are you the... Have you not been awake for the last three days? Don't you know what's happened, they say to Jesus? Can you imagine addressing the Lord in that way and then later coming to realize who you were talking to? <laughs> and he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, The things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and then crucified him. But we had hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things came to pass. Moreover, certain women of our company amazed us, having been early at the tomb, and when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of them that were with us went to the tomb and found it, even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Alright, did they believe? I mean, do you understand the story, what happened that day? Now it's later in the day, and these people, they've got all the news. They've gone to the tomb. The tomb is empty. But they didn't see him, meaning they didn't find his body. They don't understand that he's risen from the dead. And he, this is Jesus, verse 25, and he said unto them, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Behooved it not Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why does Jesus rebuke them? As he says, because you haven't drawn the proper inferences from the empirical evidence that's been given to you? He says, look, you have eyewitness testimony that the tomb is empty, you know the circumstances, on and on and on. How could you not believe that he rose from the dead? He doesn't say that. He says, you fools, haven't you read the Bible? See, far from expecting the resurrection based on what the Bible had taught, they had not even understood that the Bible and the Old Testament would have told them the Messiah will rise from the dead. Let me give you an example. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. 
Psalm 16 and uh, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My soul also shall dwell confidently, or in Hebrew, in safety. For thou wilt not leave my soul to hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Had they not read the story of Jonah, how Jonah was swallowed down into the belly of a great fish, and three days later was vomited up on the shore, Jesus said in his teaching ministry before he was crucified, the only sign that will be given to this generation is the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of a great fish. And so Jesus says, are you so slow to understand? The Old Testament had said God's Holy One would not be allowed to see corruption. His flesh would dwell in safety. Three days after being consumed, he would be alive again and ministering. And so this must have been the greatest Bible lesson of all time. As Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, goes through all the scripture, expounding it about himself. And about this time, they come near to the village where, where they were going, and he made as though he would go further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, it's toward evening, and the day's now far spent. And he went in to abide with them. And it came to pass, when he had sat down with them to meet, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Of course they were. This is the Jesus who had just broken bread three days previous. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And now their eyes are open and they remember Jesus and they recognize him. All these stories are wonderful stories and I could keep you here all day expounding them because they're so exciting. But what's the point? What's the thread here that you need to draw out from this? Why did the disciples... What's the thread here that you need to draw out from this? Why did the disciples believe? Not because they expected it, far from it. They should have expected it. Jesus rebukes them. You foolish men. Why don't you believe what the Bible said? It took eyewitness experience to make these people believers. But they should have believed based on the teaching of God's own word. They should have hoped against all human expectation, against all human hope, that Jesus would rise again. If you want to see the nature of faith, turn in your Bibles to Romans 4 and the 16th verse, where Abraham, the father of the faithful, is set forth as the model and the paradigm of believing. What had God said to Abraham that was so unbelievable? God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Abraham thought inside himself, yeah, right. I'm an old man. My wife is too old to have children. And on top of that, she's been barren all her life. I'm going to have many children. I'm going to have many nations come through me. Mm -hmm. Here's what Paul says about that in Romans 4, the 16th verse. For this cause it is of faith that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise may be sure to all the seed, 
not to that only which is of the law, but to that which is also of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now notice how the father of the faithful is described. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made thee. Before him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, remember that, gives life to the dead, and calls the things which are not as though they were. This doesn't exist presently. Abraham has no son, but God talks as though the son is there already. This God who can even give life to the dead. Who, this is Abraham, in hope believed against hope to the end that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham believed according to what had been spoken and against hope. His hope was in the word of God. Abraham did not go to the gynecologist of his day to say, what's what's the chance here for my wife having a baby? Against all human hope, Abraham believed what God had said. And without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead, he being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb being barren. Yet looking unto the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Wherefore also it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. That's faith. It's when God says it's going to happen and it's going to happen by the power of my word. Not by the power of human expectation. Not by anything that you can expect given your experience in this world. This isn't the natural course of things. It's my word that's going to change the course of things. And so Abraham believed the word of God. And his wife, old and barren, has a child. And he becomes the father of many nations. He believes this God who can give life to the dead. And you know the play on words here in Paul's fascinating. Abraham, as good as dead, 100 years old. His wife having a dead womb, being barren. God gives life to them. But Abraham is another experience of faith that is recounted in the New Testament that comes even closer to the kind of hope I'm preaching on this resurrection morning. If you look at Hebrews, the 11th chapter, in the 17th verse, the second great illustration of faith in Abraham's life comes after the miracle of Isaac's birth. You know the story of Abraham's life? God finally gave him the son of promise. The promised son is there miraculously and then God came later in Abraham's life and he said Abraham if you would be perfect before me I want you to sacrifice your only son your one and only son the son of promise now stop and think about it folks if Abraham kills Isaac how on earth is God going to fulfill his promise that Abraham would become the father of many nations? Abraham's cutting off his heir. He's cutting off his only hope of God fulfilling that promise. And so in Hebrews the 11th chapter, verse 17, we read, By faith Abraham, being tried, tested of God, offered up Isaac. 
Yes, he that had gladly received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, even he to whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. How could Abraham act in that kind of faith? How could Abraham believe the promise of God? God, if you have me sacrifice my son, what will be left of your promise? And now you've got to read the 19th verse. This is so wonderful. Accounting that God is able to raise up even from the dead, from whence he did also in a figure receive him back. Oh, you fools, why are you so slow to believe what God had said? In the Old Testament, there was the picture of the resurrection. In a figure, Isaac is received back from the dead, as it were. Here's the God who can give life to the dead, to an old man as good as dead, with a wife having a dead womb, he gives a son. Then he says, kill the son. And how could Abraham do that? Because he accounted that God is able to raise the dead. So that if he had gone through it, of course you know God stopped him and provided the substitute lamb, the ram that was caught in the thicket. But if Abraham had gone through it, the reason he could do it is because he, know, he said, well then God will raise Isaac from the dead. And now the day has come when God did raise Isaac from the dead. The greater Isaac and the son of Abraham who fulfills all the promises, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John 20 verse 9 says, They had not yet believed the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Let me make it easier on you. There are those today who tell us that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. And we know that the body of Jesus, according to Paul's theology, is the church. So, Jesus rose from the dead in his body means the church came into existence after the death of Jesus. Now, you can believe that, right? And there are many theologians, although I wouldn't want to give them the title, who will tell you that's what the resurrection is. The church lived on after Jesus. It's as though Jesus rose from the dead in his body, the church. That isn't what the Bible teaches us. You believe in a resurrection? How many of you, I'm sure all of you, have been to funerals, maybe more than you would like? It's a dreadful thing to see a body prepared for burial. Some people in their grief talk to corpses. We don't usually rebuke them or try to set them straight because we know that they're going through a terrible emotional time. But you've seen that, haven't you? People who say things to dead bodies. You know better. People who are dead don't live again. All of the collected statistical evidence that we have would tell you Jesus couldn't rise from the dead. As Boltmann put it, don't you use a refrigerator? Don't you know better than to believe in such silly things? Why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead today? Why do I believe it? but because God took the foolishness that is so deeply ingrained in my heart away and opened my eyes so that when I read the scripture, I believed it. Now the disciples had a tougher time. They had to go the way of empirical verification. They had to have it right in front of them. But here's what I want to leave you with today as we consider these thoughts on Easter. The end of John 20 
what we read at the end of John 20 is the story of Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas said, I won't believe unless you prove it to me so that I can touch him, I can observe him, I can see these things. And so Jesus granted Thomas's wish. And Thomas apparently was not interested in going through with the scientific interrogation. It's a fascinating thing. Once Thomas did encounter Jesus, he didn't want to touch the wounds and so forth. He just apparently went to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. You don't feel very scientific in questioning in the presence of the resurrected Savior. And Jesus said unto him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But this is the lesson of John's Gospel. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You haven't seen Jesus. I haven't. He didn't come into my bedroom late one night and show himself so I could believe him. But the blessing is for us this Easter morning. If we will not be slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, didn't it behoove the Messiah to give up his life and then be raised from the dead? God's Holy One would not see corruption. And many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life in his name. Let's pray. God, we do ask for the gift of faith. We do ask that you would change our hearts and open our eyes and help us to understand that it's according to your mighty word that this resurrection of your own Son and our Savior took place. We ask that you will grant us faith in that resurrection though we have not yet seen him. We ask rather that like Abraham we would believe against all hope, against all human expectation, against all of our experience and what we've learned in this world that we would be believed according to what you have said, according to your promise, according to your very word, that Jesus rose from the dead. And we do ask that in believing you would give us life in his name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.